Uncover the threat landscape with assured and interconnected threat intelligence from James. Covering military capabilities, terrorism and insurgency, country risk, and CBRN. Support your threat and capability assessments and enhance your situational awareness with Jane's Threat Intelligence Solutions. Find out more at janes.com threat. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Jane's World of Intelligence podcast. So today we're joined by Tim Clancy, who is the founder and CEO of Dialectic Simulations Consulting. Um, so for now, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thanks for having me today, Mark. Maybe you could give us more of an introduction to your work. Sure. My focus of my work is on violence uh, and instability of non-state actors. And really, I look at that from a perspective of system structure, trying to understand the underlying system structure with a, the purpose to identify policies we can use to reduce it. Well, okay. So um, this process of radicalization, it can be, you know, a pretty complex process, right, at the best of times. I know in the course of your work, you've developed a structure of radicalization, I, I guess you'd call it. And, you know, maybe you could give us a, a bit of an overview. Sure. So our structure that we looked at, we went over all the expert theories we could, but we were trying to look for something that was agnostic to violent ideology. So the structure I'm about to describe, it's not just for white supremacy. It's not just for radical Islam Salafi talk theory. It's really a generic structure that we feel can represent a wide variety. And really the, at the in the governed space, the key process that an individual goes through begins with a grievance. There's a grievance, they perceive a grievance or some form of moral outrage. And this, I want to be clear here, these could be legitimate grievances. These are not necessarily nefarious themselves, but the key is then they advance to this narrative and they gain a narrative. And the way they gain it is through cultural scripts. You can describe these as the memes, the information. It's coming throughout their networks. The narrative explains why the grievance occurs. And here it's key that when we talk about violent radicalization, it's almost always a conspiracy narrative that says, here's why the grievance exists, who who is to blame, and, and what needs to be done. And this is really the roots of a violent ideology. Then they go through a fixation phase where they, their lives get consumed around this narrative. They can't get enough of it. They're always looking for more information. They're beginning to go out and explore and find areas where they can get more. And then if they continue advancing, where it gets dangerous is they sort of adopt this identification and activation. And the identity that they adopt, the personal identity is sort of a pseudo-commando or warrior identity. I've got to go do something on behalf of this grievance. I've got to take it into my hands. They sort of rationalize a violent response as part of this identity. And it's this identity that really gets them to the next stage pathway to violence, and that ends up in the terrorist act. So this, you can think of this loop, for lack of a better word, This, and then yeah. when they commit terrorism, that provokes a societal response that can lead to grievance. The cycle continues. Now, influencing this gear is all sorts of domestic network effects. And we're going to talk a little bit later, I think, about the difference of um, influence from your local connections versus a non-state actor. But these network sure. effects are going on whether... Uh, people who are at risk to being susceptible to this are being sort of moderating influences or radicalizing influences. But this is all happening in the governed space. What's key to understand, though, is in the ungoverned space, there are non-state actors, and these could be organized hierarchical mm-hmm. groups that run websites, or it could just be the sort of uh, crowd of folks like you might see in a Reddit or a 4chan. Right. They're sending cultural scripts into the near space they you know there's two main forms there's broadcasting scripts 
which is what gives the narrative, right? This is how people find a narrative for a grievance. This broadcasting, it's untargeted, it's uh, unspecific, it's just out there, and it's spreading that conspiracy narrative, often aligned with a violent ideology. But there's a second kind, which is narrow casting, which is much more targeted and personal. And this could be following a Twitter of someone you think is speaking to you. It could be these videos that are, are directed to followers. It could be very tailored. And that's what drives the fixation and the identification. And this is what really can accelerate uh, this radicalization process. So this structure, mm -hmm. I, I've kept it fairly simple, but this structure we think actually is explanatory for a wide variety of radicalizations, whether you talk about um, school shooters replicating the Columbine incident in the US, mm -hmm or those who may have been, for example, followers of ISIS, or more recently you have the concern with QAnon and radicalized groups on the right-wing extremism in the US and UK and other areas. What do you think makes people more vulnerable to accepting those grievances that, that you've outlined there? And you know, how, does that, how would you fit that into your, to your model of, of radicalization? We use rely on the research here of an in, a researcher named Malloy. He has something called the Trap 18. You may hear this as dimensions of vulnerability. There's been a yeah. lot of research into characteristics, into what we would describe as an at-risk population. And so um, these characteristics in the Trap 18 that we use, they're they're divided into sort of distal characteristics, things that are way in the past. And this could be um, they, they're dependent on a virtual community. They may have had stymied career progress or thwarting of their goals. They've, they've had a trouble uh, bonding with people. They may have had a past mental disorder. Uh, they may have had a history of criminal behavior. These are things in the past that it's not mm -hmm. saying if you have one of these things, right. you're at risk. It's a collection. Right. Right. And, and another thing we found that was really key for this at risk is they're looking for self-similar people. So this is a part that was novel to our research and I think comes from um, looking at other ways contagion spread is an at-risk population. You can create a profile for them, but they're not out there necessarily looking across all terrorism and all violent ideologies. They're looking for people who look like themselves and taking cues and signals from them and are therefore more receptive, which is one reason um, you start to see channels create in the way radicalization not only forms, but how it's expressed in violence that is very much ideological specific is because of this, not just these background characteristics that, that may be shared, but the, it's, they've got self-similar behavior. They're looking to someone who looks like them. They see themselves in them. They're inspired by them. They may take signals from them. And that's the pathway that, that, that lends more weight to the radicalizing scripts. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you touched on a really important point there, right? It's like it's when these different combinations of vulnerabilities are brought together, it sometimes it almost creates, you know, that for want of a better phrase, that perfect storm in an individual, you know, where they're maybe their their beliefs that they once held have been shaken, and then that makes them somehow, you know, more vulnerable, more susceptible to to taking on maybe the you know the ideas of an extremist propagator or or whoever else, but. But I mean, I know your your focus is, you know, it's not just on on understanding, you know, why radicalization happens, right? I mean, I know you're you're also interested in, you know, how do we reduce violence, like you say, how do we reduce violence and instability um, uh, in in society, you know, and you know what I guess what with with the topic that we're talking about today, radicalization, I guess you know we're asking ourselves, look, you know, what could we do to stop this thing? once it started or hey you know how do we even prevent this thing from happening in the first place so 
you know, to your mind, are there any factors out there that, that you think may help put the brakes perhaps on an individual's process towards violent radicalization? Yeah, I, I, I think there is, but I think it may be useful to take a step back and talk a little bit of how we see uh, this this behavior spreading. Because when we looked at these, there's, there's two general theories out there, which is that um, terrorism is being spread by, by groups of individuals that are loosely connected or perhaps a non-state actor. We mm -hmm. actually found, looking at this structure, and we can talk about the evidence later that we reviewed, but we saw uh, it's almost like in some ways a contagion. And I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with the concept of a Werther contagion, but just to go through what that is, a Werther contagion is when a celebrity commits suicide and they do it in a specific way. The media picks it up because they're celebrity. They spread that broadly. So everyone gets to see it. Now, people who see themselves in that celebrity and are at susceptible, they're at a risky point in their life, it, this is a well-established phenomenon. They are more likely to ideate and perhaps even attempt suicide in a period of time after that, not just the attempt, but they'll use the actual methods that celebrity did. And where their contagions are very well studied, they're very well understood, and it tends to taper off because any subsequent suicides themselves are not necessarily media worthy. So it, it's sort of a one and done. The, you have the initial spike and then it falls. What we saw in our structure when we analyzed it was that there's a similar contagion effect that's almost inverted in that rather than an individual having celebrity, the mass violence itself creates the notoriety. And so if you yeah. have a successful event that kills a, a number of people, the media picks it up, it spreads it almost universally, and that then spreads these scripts, this narrative, this, this, um, this modus operandi, and into that, some set, it will fall upon that at-risk populations who sees themselves in that perpetrator, and they'll begin following it. And the, the challenge here is that with a terrorism contagion as opposed to a Werther contagion, the next act that succeeds doesn't need to be a celebrity. The, the act itself creates the notoriety. So what you have in these systems is the contingencies of what, what is a sufficiently large enough at-risk population um, to receive these scripts and then a template that they can follow that is easy enough to access or has a high enough success rate such that the next violent act occurs soon enough that the media will pick it up and keep the cycle going. And this contagion theory provides a very powerful explanation for things that we would commonly call lone wolf actors. You know, mm -hmm. Columbine shootings. There's been 174 attempts to replicate Columbine. Um, even by people who were who who were born after the original perpetrators were dead, but they're still copying that contagion because they find themselves. It also, we think, is explanatory for more um, traditional forms that people might be more familiar with, like Al-Qaeda or ISIS-inspired um, terrorism, because in this case, you may have a very small at-risk population at the UK or in the, uh, the United States, but they may have influences from abroad sending those scripts in. So you can really look at these. We look at as, as all of these forms of radicalization that are out there as um, being determined by the contingencies of a system in a given population in a specific area. And that determines how it will manifest. And it can manifest in many ways. Now, to get to your point about how you stop this, mm -hmm. once you understand that feedback loop, some of the ways of stop, we already know how to stop or limit a Werther contagion. There's a, a, like I said, there's a good amount of research of how you report on suicides to cut that feedback loop. And yeah. we think there's ideas in that to do it. But there's even some more specific things. One of the reasons we use simulations is so we can test this. So if you think about 
um, that radicalization cycle I mentioned. Obviously, having alternative narratives out there is useful, so they're they're not latching onto the violent one. But that's hard to control in this day and age. We're trying to focus on what's practical and usable. But as they get that identification, they begin to identify, we tend to highlight the completed terrorist incidents with mass casualties, but there's a whole bunch of them that fail. And so one of the things that's a very distinct is highlighting what we call failure notoriety, which is the likelihood you're going to get arrested, you're going to get caught, it's not going to mm -hmm. happen, you'll fail. And that can, can serve to dampen interest and increase abandonment. Now, again, this doesn't mean that there, there's not a risk, but we're trying to get them off-ramped from a violent mass violent incident. Another, yeah. way, another way to do it is to, um, if you can make it so that they don't see themselves in the perpetrator, there's not going to be as much replication. And I can go through a, big, a few examples of very high casualty terrorist incidents that were never replicated because... Um, the demographic and combination of factors with the perpetrator didn't appeal to a large enough subpopulation, and therefore there was no replication, and this contagion effect kind of died out. And so mm -hmm. I think there's some things we're looking at of how do you identify this at-risk population, where they're at, and do interventions to get them before they commit the acts themselves, because that cuts that feedback loop that then spreads the contagion. And if the contagion is underway, how do you use tools in the media to dampen or mitigate the contagion and uh, keep it from uh, replicating. Yeah, that that is super interesting. I mean, uh, you know, just just going off your model there as well. I mean, you're talking about the 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 ungoverned space, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, j just thinking about what you just said there about contagion. I mean, obviously, you, you have it. You have an attack. Say, for example, Columbine or, or whatever else. And then online, these kind of subcultures emerge that continually kind of promote, you know, why this attack was a good thing in the eyes of, of you know, the perpetrators or, or whatever else. So, I guess, I guess that's a challenge as well. That in, you know, that that contagion in the ungoverned space, yeah, you know, and how how does a government or, or whatever else, anyone trying to kind of combat this thing, how does how do they actually contest that? Because it is in those spaces that are. That exists for the very very reason, very reason for promoting those those attacks. Um, so, what do you, what do you think about that? And that's 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 it's probably easier to say what not to do than what to do in those spaces. Yeah, and that's yeah. the challenge is that the way I liken those spaces is those spaces exist because of a grievance, um, mm -hmm. and the grievance is like water to a lawn. It's a carrying capacity that generates these things. So there's a lot of things that you see, you know, in the past there might've been periodic raids in a physical area. They'll throw a few missiles at the information operations, try and physically destroy it. With the virtual space, you may see these periodic, uh, for example, after January 6th in the United States, they Twitter did a big purge, Parler was shut down. The yeah. problem with these interventions is they're only um, affecting the, the casting capacity, the, the ability to send out cultural scripts. The grievance is like that water and that grass is going to grow again. And so you get a little dip and then the it's sort of like an organic growth. The capability reconstitutes itself in one of these digital spaces and is yeah. right back at casting it. So, you know, we, we can one of the benefits of a simulation is we can model those types of um, interventions and show out exactly why they don't work or what combination. And you've really got to I mean, it's it's kind of almost a. Uh, a, a long-term policy, but you've got to reduce the underlying grievance while cutting out the organic capability. Because if you don't tackle that grievance, you're not going to do it. Now, some of these grievances, they may not be easily accessible to tackle, which is why we focus more 
on the, the, the feedback effects coming out after the incident itself, because we feel there's yeah, more yeah. tangible things, especially in the US where you have the First Amendment and there may be complications of shutting down some of these sites. That's very hard to um, do. Now you can you can pollute the streams. Uh, you can use this concept called counter reification, where if you think about the way this contagion spreads, it's a very well cohered idea that communicates a narrative that's tied to a violent ideology that's tied to um, a template on how to conduct the attack. And I say tied as saying, it's not like there's one blueprint, but all of these things together connect to one idea. And you could call that idea incel dumb or um, you know, any of these things. Counter reification is simply diffusing that idea to mean many things and creating confusion. And that can be a, an effort. But again, there's you get into some legal and constitutional challenges there. But that's one way. If, if people can't see themselves or can't understand what the template is asking them to do, they can't replicate the attack and you can't get this feedback effect. Um, and that's probably one of the better methods when you have this uh, sort of swarm approach where there's no one actor that's generating these things it's a collection and you're, you're really going up against the hill there yeah yeah totally um just wanted to focus in for a minute on the topic of you know you've kind of already mentioned it really but the the speed of an individual's radicalization process because this is something that you know when i look at various different cases i I'm always left a little bit bamboozled with with the divergences here. I mean, a couple of couple of UK focused examples um, on the white white supremacist end of the spectrum here. So, for example, we had one individual a guy called Thomas May. You probably heard of him. He was a guy who perpetrated the murder of a British MP in 2016. Now, if you read some open source reports on on him, he had been consuming extremist or white supremacist propaganda for decades then suddenly one day in 2016 he decides he wants to go ahead and, and perpetrate his attack right that's on one end of the spectrum now on the other end of the spectrum you've got another guy called darren osborne who I think around about 2017 decides he wants to perpetrate a vehicle impact attack right outside a mosque in london now if you believe some open source reports about that osborne self-radicalized online and some some reports say you know in the space of weeks now you've got a massive divergence there haven't you in terms of the speed of an individual's radicalization process I, I just thought it'd be great to get your thoughts really on that divergence and maybe how perhaps you account for that in your model in in any way because it does appear to just wildly diverge in, in some cases what what do you think well that's that's a great point and i want to dig a little deeper in the Finsbury attack, because that's a case study of, of our theory that we've used to illustrate some points. But to, to get to the broader question, yeah. I like to think of it as there's a fast gear and a slow gear. And I think part of this is to understand how humans express violent intent. There's, you know, evolutionary speaking, we have two uh, uh, fundamental reactions. One is the effective reaction. It's an immediate reaction. It's very emotive. It's fast. You It, it burns itself out very quickly. And it's not very well planned. It's 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 the the threat that we developed evolutionary for you know a bear entering the cave or somebody throwing a spear at you or something like that. It's very much in the moment. That's effective violence. Now predatory violence or what some call instrumental violence. That's the evolutionary response of say going on a hunt where the threat is long term abstract. And it's a very cognitive effort. It's a very long-term sustained effort. It involves a lot of planning. It's it's very different than effective violence. And I think it's important to remember that both of these are in are in people, the effective response and the predatory response. And in most people, there's barriers for us doing this against others. So to some extent, before you get violence on any other human, you have to drop those barriers. But this concept of slow burn, fast burn, 
I think gets into those um, contingencies. If someone is is has a, a a slow burn accumulation, they may just be getting radicalized. And if the, there's an opportunistic situation, they may go into an effective response that is hard to tell. Like, how long have they been at this? Where did it go at? Um, mm -hmm. Versus someone who is, you know, a lot of these mass violence attacks, they're planned for months. The actual someone mm -hmm. radicalizes, and then they're planning for between six to eighteen months. And this is these are the contingencies that we look at. So if you think about if you're going to spread a terror contagion, the attack itself needs to generate enough casualties to get the media attention on it, to spread it widely to build. And that favors attacks that tend to be well planned. So when we looked at the data, we actually looked at 4,500 terror incidents over a 20-year period, U.S. and uh, Western Europe. We classified them by the type of radicalization we want. And there was a whole bunch of them that failed that never made the list of most case studies. You know, we, we in our research, we tend to have survivor bias, and I don't mean survivor of the incident, but we tend to focus on the incidents that completed and had high fatalities. But we looked at all of them, and we found a lot of evidence, almost like a background noise, of attacks that occurred, which seemed to be little planning, little effort, didn't do much, and just kind of faded in the background. And that may be an example of an effective response to one of these radicalization. Now, a predatory response where you've planned it, you get it in place and you generate a large amount of casualties on, in a completed attack, that that tends to self-elevate itself, spread itself wider. And so if you think of this almost like a cold virus, that virus is better adapted for replication, which is why things like that cause many casualties tend to be what's replicated. It, and it gets to the accessibility of the, the, the difficulty of replicating the attack. You don't see a lot of bombings as much um, these days, at least, especially in the United States, because it's difficult, it's tricky, you're likely to get caught. Buying a firearm and going on a walking shooting spree is a lot easier to replicate. So that's, you mm -hmm. see these contingencies that are regional and location-based driving the channels within which terrorism and radicalization expresses itself. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's very likely that this slow ramp fast or a slow gear, fast gear are operating in all sorts of people. And the question is, was it that they really were radicalized quickly and then committed an attack, or were they radicalizing yeah. along and an effective, opportunistic? I walk outside, I see something, and I I, I just decide to do it. Comes mm -hmm. up, and I think that we have disentangling those because they can coexist is very tricky. Definitely a great response. Now, I just wanted to explore with you finally, really, about this kind of debate that that has been kind of going on, uh, I guess, within the um, the community that 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 looks at terrorism and violent extremism, this so-called, you know, the groups versus individuals um, debate when, when we're talking about violent extremism, you know, how much influence does an extremist group have on radicalizing individuals to perpetrate violence these days? And I, I think this gets, this is a fascinating debate. I'm, I'm very familiar with it in working with this. And, and I often will hear it called the swarm, which is the groups of individuals versus the fishermen, the non-state actor. I think it's yeah. been a debate. And when I look back, I think it's important to understand how this developed. In a lot of cases, this debate played out in the context of a global war of terror where they were looking at a limited case set of completed terrorist attacks, largely within the Salafi Takfiri uh, violent ideology. So we're talking Al Qaeda, ISIS, um, those those types groups. And they were having this debate. Do we need to intervene to stop these non-state actors in the far, the ungoverned space? Because that will prevent it. But um, in our work, we actually took a big step back and said this whole question of whether it's individuals radicalizing one another or groups 
are themselves just manifestations of this underlying system reacting to different contingencies. And so this debate about root cause, that structure I, I talked about before that was kind of a blueprint, um, one of the things you can do with system science is you can do some interesting tests for causality in complex systems. And if you think about that structure and then turning it sideways and extending it vertically, so it's layers of a cake. Think of a, a layers of a cake stacked on on top of each other. Level one would be the terror incidents themselves. These are from when the perpetrator leaves the door, goes out, conducts the attack to the attack, either complete or fails. The terrorist is caught, captured, killed, whatever. Just that pure, discrete incident. That's level one. Level two are the individuals who comprise the at-risk population and how they move between radicalization and non-radicalization within that. Three is where this, this contest plays out, which is the influence of near networks, your, your associates, the folks you're getting online, and the influences of non-state actor. Four is these spaces. Four is, four is the hierarchy where the non-state actor um, in a virtual space like a 4chan or in a physical space like Afghanistan or Syria can spread these messages in. And level five is the symbolic or abstract. And so now we had a hierarchy and this whole debate is really focused, I think, unfortunately on levels two, three, and four. They're not looking at the entire system. And what we found when we tested the causation, it was actually coming from the highest level down, the symbolic um, system of systems at the very, very top. And that those influences then created channels within which emerged manifestations that we then said, oh, that's that's a non-state actor one. That's that's evidence for this versus, oh, that's a, a swarm case without understanding those contingencies. And let me give you two examples. We are able to test with simulations and this is synthetic data. So there's a big caveat on this, but we're able to test with simulations what are the values these contingencies need to have to spark a successful contagion? And the basic, one of the most basic elements is the size of the at-risk population. So take two different at-risk populations and I can show you how this debate between swarm and fishermen emerges. Um, in the UK, for example, or even in the US, you might talk about, well, there's a very there's a, a much smaller at-risk population of men who uh, follow the Muslim faith and have these at-risk factors in the past that they would then be susceptible when they see self-similarity with a message that's coming from an al-Qaeda or ISIS. That's a small at-risk population. Um, the population itself is so small that it, it need, may need something from the outside coming in, those cultural scripts coming in from the far space, broadcasting it. And so it may appear that that benefits from a non-state actor group, an extremist organization. But take another example. We start with Columbine. Columbine was two white male teenagers, uh, high school age men that had a sort of narcissistic, aggressive, angst, you know, perspective is how the media has portrayed them, at least. And that's actually quite a lot of, you know, population in the U.S. at any given time are white men in that age group, thereabouts, who have those same things. Huge at-risk population. So now you have a much larger base within the contagion to spread and self-replicate without necessarily needing outside groups intentionally directing it. So you have two contingencies that are that are different and they manifest themselves in different ways. And I think there's been this kind of desire to say, well, it's one or the other. And we look at it as the contingencies of the system at any point in time will determine which one will manifest. In the United States, we have we we tend to go after organized groups pretty pretty severely. We mm -hmm. tend to clamp down on it. So you see, uh, for example, when the FBI cracked down in white supremacy 
and sort of far right militia groups in the 80s and 90s, you would see this concept called resist or leaderless resistance, yes. excuse me, emerge yeah. leaderless resistance. That is a reaction to the contingency within the United States of the successfulness of a group being able to survive long enough to conduct an attack. And you see uh, we had this uh, Michigan militia group just uh, last summer try and make this plan to, you know, capture the governor of Michigan. And it was all yeah. tied up in COVID. You know, that's an example of a small group that had been ostracized from the main group because the main group's like, we don't need this heat. We don't need the FBI coming down on us. They pushed them away. This small mm -hmm. group organized. They were penetrated by the FBI and broken up. Technology plays a role, too. You know, these days, it's not really there's no differentiation in your access to media. If there's an incident anywhere, there's an incident everywhere and it spreads in about five hours. Um, but we can, with the simulation, replicate historical time periods where that may not have been the case. And that's one of the interesting experiments we want to run or test is to say, look, this this theory means there has to be a transmission of the information fast enough so that it's still in the public conscience to land on those at risk and perpetrate. Now, with the Internet being what it is, you have this massive reservoir. So I'd say the contingencies yeah. favor the loose groups of individuals self-radicalizing themselves. But that's more of a contingency argument than mm -hmm. a which type. And as the contingencies change, that will adapt. And here's the key with the adaptive system is is the reason these are tricky is these systems are not static. Uh, and, and you know this. I mean, this is this is obvious to anyone listening to this, I imagine. But as you go in and implement a policy, the policy itself will cause an adaptation and reaction in the space. And we simulated this by uh, a law enforcement intervention that would say go after a certain kind of right wing extremist associated with January 6th insurrection. Right. They're going in heavy. They're moving it. Those actions themselves, if they're not done in a careful way, can provoke a backlash which becomes a grievance, and the grievance then becomes the fertile ground by which other radicals. Now, this isn't to say don't well, prosecute, yeah. don't go after them, but yeah. it's the same concept that you see in counterinsurgency, that you have to be very thoughtful and credible and careful of how you go about these groups. And that's where we, we're trying to get into that really nuanced discussion, but in practical ways so that we can advise policymakers, this is not just what you want to do, but to what strength and what timing window and have that kind of sophisticated discussion as opposed to, unfortunately, in public policy debate, it's kind of the single solution and then people rally around that. Yeah, got it. Well, um, Tim, I think that brings us to the end of uh, the podcast, really. I just wanted to uh, to thank you for a really super interesting chat. I mean, I know this um, this is a really complex topic, but I think you, you know, you've, you've broken it down, explained it, you know, super well. So, um, you know, thank you for that. Thank you. Jane's Capella interconnects millions of assured data points across Jane's foundational intelligence with the ability to integrate and contextualize multiple sources, delivering the single source of truth. Jane's Capella increases certainty and accelerates decision-making for everyone in your organization. Find out more at janes.com forward slash capella.